Hey, good afternoon. My name is Dr. James Smith Jr. And welcome to another edition of the Dr. James Show. Wow, we as always have another phenomenal show. I can't wait to get to it. I'm gonna bring on my co-pilot for this flight, the Shannon Peck. Shannon, what's going on in Peckland? <laughs> we are week two of the new year. And if you thought things couldn't get any crazier, folks, I'm here to tell you they have. But Dr. James, there's always a but, but it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a positive one because when we bring on our guests, we understand our current climate, our current situation, what's going on in the world and everything aligns up for the right time. So our, our, our person who's joining us today is right on time and I'm not gonna reveal anything before you, before you bring her on or what the subject's gonna be. All I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is get those pens, those pads together. Make sure you check out the replay on our YouTube channels and all of our social media platforms because you're going to want to take notes. Um, light up this chat room, ask your questions, give us your comments. We'll be sure to share them over the hour. So um, week two. You have me excited. I know we've both done our research and I don't know if 60 minutes is enough for the power, the wit, the wisdom, the personality of our, our guests, but it's gonna have to do. As a matter of fact, Shannon, I'm gonna move right into our introduction of Dr. Gilboa and I'll do it via video. Please take a look at this. Wish your life was different, but don't have the time or the energy or the whatever it takes to change it. Do you wish you ate better, saved more money, exercised regularly, or didn't get sucked into relationship struggles? I'm glad. No, seriously, I'm really glad you're feeling that way because that frustration is the internal motivation that will help you find and change one behavior to get more of the life you want. I'm Deborah Gilboa, Dr. G. I'm a family physician and a resilience expert. I help people identify the strategies that work to change a behavior and strengthen that skill, behavior change, to take control of their lived experience. This course, which is only... All right, all right, Dr. G, welcome to the Dr. James Show. Hey. Nice, hello. <laughs> Happy New Year to you, my friend. I'm excited, I'm excited to spend this time with you. As am I, Happy New Year. Mm. How did you bring it in? I brought it in in a time-honored tradition of shots, whipped cream shots. <laughs> uh, it was me and my three boys. We tried something we've actually never done before, which is um, in a pot on the stove, we made fondue. So fondue. And then uh, when the clock strikes or, you know, the computer clock tells us it's midnight, we did whipped right. cream shots straight out of the can into your mouth. That's how you know it's the new year. <laughs> Bam! Bam! Yep, <laughs> Love that's it. it. Love it. <laughs> In your introduction, you mentioned that you are a resilience expert. I like to say resilience whisperer. <laughs> Except what that does that don't mean? Whisper very what does much. that mean? And what do you do with, with it? I know you work with families, with organizations, with businesses. 
But what exactly is a resilience expert and or whisperer? People hate change. Mm. And in any organization or situation where there's a structure, meaning there's a leader and there are people who are learning from that leader or doing what that leader is asked, which is sometimes families and definitely in business, that issue of change becomes the biggest friction point. Leaders feel frustrated and betrayed and disrespected when people are hesitant towards change and people feel oppressed frustrated and disrespected when change is asked of them over and over and over again. And the truth is that navigating change, that is where resilience comes into play. So I help organizations be change ready and navigate change and then pick up the pieces, handle the reconciliation that has to happen after change. Yeah. That means you stayed busy last year then, right? Yeah, it turns out that uh, I have been, you know, for several years of my professional life, making the argument that resilience is crucial. And 2020 stepped up and told me to hold its beer and made that argument for me. Wow. Why do you think we haven't solved this problem? I mean, change is always going to be around. And people tend to respond the same way all the time. Right. Um, we have that. I love that question. We haven't solved this problem and we won't solve it as a culture until we see stress differently. Mm, can you say more about how you see stress and how you encourage other people to handle the stress? I like to call it a tension convention. That's what stress creates. What do you- Does, what, what do you for sure. Well, well, first I want people to check me. Do you agree that in our society, we talk about stress as a poison? Mm, we talk yes. about how to avoid it, how to minimize it, how to not give it to other people, how to not let people give it to us, right? We, we talk about stress like, like a poison you want to stay away from. And that's actually a myth that I challenge. Stress mm. is a tool. It's a big, heavy tool, and it'll bash your thumb in or your head in if it's used wrong. But it is a tool, as a matter of fact, it's the only tool that will make you mentally more fit. Give, give me a tip. Okay. Pretend, so, like, right, pretend like right now I am stressing out. All right, I'm, I'll make it real world. I had a meeting at eight, a meeting at nine, a meeting at 10.30, a meeting at 11.30. Now it's the show and I still have two more meetings and a presentation to make at four o'clock today. That's my day. I can be, could be stressed out. What, what help? <laughs> okay. So the first thing is empathy. That is hard. I mean, that is actually really hard. Many of us have experienced having meeting after meeting, after meeting, after meeting without any oxytocin break in the middle without any chance now to like, you know, wander out to the lobby and take a breath of fresh air and run into a friend and get a hug or, you know, or pick up the phone and say, hey, meet me for dinner at this place that really relaxes me that I really enjoy. So it's really hard what you're doing today. And now I have a question for you. Please. Do you want to be able to rock a day like this? I want to crush a day like today. Yes. You want enough work next month and next year that you have lots of days like this? 
Yes. <laughs> okay. So that means that instead of saying, well, I got to reduce it, I got to minimize it. You know, Dr. James, you got to schedule less things. You got to learn to not do as much. I want to say to you instead, let's figure out one thing that you can test out today to see if it makes today easier so that when this day comes up next week or next month, you're less winded by it. You're Ooh. in better fit. You're, you're, you're better in better shape for it. Oh, do tell. Do tell. So I'm going to ask you, is there, when, when you're struggling, when you're feeling, whether, whatever it is, overwhelmed, frazzled, uh, frustrated, a little edgy or irritable, what's something that reliably, in a pretty short period of time, helps you enjoy taking that deep breath? Oh, it is taking the deep breath. It's shifting my mindset from the totality of the day to working on one thing at a time. Okay. So what, what's right in front of you? You want to chunk it out, yeah. not look at it as one big thing. Mm -hmm. Another question, is there something like music or fresh air or a little exercise or poetry or a meme or a laugh? Like what re what's one of your own reset buttons? It's, it's, it's the fresh air. I remember when I was working on my doctorate and working on all those papers and doing the research, I would typically just leave the office and go for a walk, get some air and come back in. How do you feel about cold fresh air? Because it's January. <laughs> I'm just putting the coat on. Let's all right. I'm getting that air in, yeah. So I'm going to say to you, can you look for two 10-minute spots in your really busy day today that even considering that you might need a biology break in the right. bathroom, that you might need to eat something, that all those things, can you schedule in two 10-minute times when you're going to grab your bottle of water and or your non-caffeinated beverage of choice and head out the door for 10 minutes? That's good. That's good. That's good. High five. Virtual. <laughs> if you find out that that made a big difference, if you can look, because the second piece is the evaluation. It's looking back on it at the end of the day and being like, was it as hard? Am I as winded as I worried I'd be? And if you're a little less winded, then you say, hey, I'm going to do that. I'm going to build in one or two of those 10 minute fresh air breaks into each of my days that are like this. So I'll have an 11, a 12, a one, but then a, a 3.30 so that I can have that half hour to fit in those 10 minutes. And I know that that helps me accomplish a day like this and still feel good. That's good. That's good. Before you give the other two, I, I want to dive into how you got here. I, I know you're a writer. Um, I know you're an author. I know you are a speaker. You're a family physician. You're a consultant. You've been on Rachel Ray, The Today Show, Good Morning America. New York Post, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal. When did all this start? What was the, the catalyst to starting you on this particular journey that you are on today? When I became a family doctor 20 years ago, wow, I was positive that if I could ask the right questions and really listen to my patients and I knew enough medicine I could prescribe the right things and I could convince people to do what I knew would help them, that I could make people better, right? I could really positively impact their well being. And it turns out all of that matters. You have to have a doctor that really listens and asks good questions and knows what they're talking about. But then I learned after about, oh gosh, six, seven, eight years in practice, that none of those things have the biggest impact on you getting better or your sense of well being. It turns out that your own personal resilience, I started to get the idea, had the biggest impact. Can I tell you a story? 
I was going to say, what, what contributed to that? It just didn't pop into your head. Something. No, oh, no, no. I was way too thick for that. I was, I was way yeah. too dense for that. I was just going along, writing prescriptions and, you know, curing people, right? <laughs> Stamping out disease. Right. So one morning, and this goes back nine or 10 years now, one morning I walked in and I'm a family doctor. So for people who don't know, that means I see kids and I see their parents and I see their grandparents. And in some lucky situations, I see their great grandparents. I take care of wow. people every age in house calls and in the office and in the hospital. So I have a really varied practice, which is good because I'm a Sesame Generation kid and I like things to change every 90 seconds. So this is really good. <laughs> and I walked in one morning to see a patient whom I'd known for a few years at that point. She was a white woman in her mid fifties, college educated, financially middle-class. And she had a disease called progressive MS. This is a rare type of multiple sclerosis where every time you get sick, have a flare up, however bad things get, that becomes your new baseline, right? So it just keeps going. With regular MS, you can often improve after a flare, but this type you don't. So when I was seeing her that particular day, she was already entirely reliant on a wheelchair. She would move her wheelchair with a, a toggle stick at her chin because she couldn't depend on her arms to be that useful. I walk into the room and I say, hey, Miss so-and-so, how are you today? And she said, wonderful. She said, you know, my grandbaby turned one this weekend and we had such a nice party. He's getting so big and the flowers by my front door are coming out. And there's that concert series, First Fridays concert series this weekend. I'm looking forward to going to that in the park. And then we went on and we had our visit. And you know what? I was still too thick. I'd have never figured it out, except that like three visits later that same morning, I walk into a different room see another patient who's also a white woman in her mid-50s, college-educated, middle-class socioeconomically, and according to her chart, suffers from some mild occasional low back pain. And that's it from a medical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I walk in and I say, hey, Ms. So-and-so, how are you today? And she said, terrible. I said, tell me what's going on. And she said, well, it's just, you know, nobody understands about my back and my work and my family, they plan things and they don't think about how it could impact me and they don't accommodate me. And I said, is your pain worse? And mm. she looked kind of surprised and she said, well, no, but it could be. Wow. And I went on and I helped her as best I might, but I couldn't help thinking, how do I get my kids to grow up behind door number one? Mm. What makes people react so differently given the same or tremendously worse circumstances. Sure. And that was the moment when I got really curious about this other element that I kept seeing play out. I could give people my best advice. I could even help them agree to try it and they would try it and sometimes it worked and sometimes it wouldn't. And it wasn't that I always got my advice right, but even when my advice was right, Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And there's all kinds of variation. And so I started reading and I started asking and learning and researching. And what I found is that this thing that we call resilience, the ability to handle change, turns out to be the best predictor of our own well-being and our own satisfaction with our lives. You know, another way of saying that is happiness. Wow. Well, wow, Shannon, party time. You want to jump in? This is this is some great stuff. Great stuff. One of our guests is saying that shopping makes her very happy and she will fill in more than 10 minutes to fill that void. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Dr. G. 
Do you think we have a habit of over oversimplifying stress or our loved ones will oversimplify our stress or our colleagues? Is that a thing? For sure. For sure. Oversimplification. Basically, I think what you're asking, Shannon, is do we kind of write off or dismiss what other people are experiencing, which is pretty much the opposite of empathy. And I hope, Dr. Jean, that when you said my day is hard and has the potential to be overwhelming, and I said the first thing is empathy because I genuinely have empathy. I'm not making that up. I also know what it feels like and I understand all the ickiness that can go along with opening up your calendar and going, what was I thinking? Or am I up to the task? So for anybody, here's what happens. And you know what, Shannon? I think you're right. I think it happens the most with our family and it comes from a really good place. When people in our family oversimplify or dismiss or belittle the stress that we express, it's because they have so much empathy for us, they don't want us to feel that way. Mm. They either feel guilty, and this happens in the workplace a lot. Somebody says, you know, I'm stressed by that project you gave me. The boss feels guilty for giving them that responsibility, or maybe I presented it wrong, or I asked, you know, I asked too much of you, but they don't want that to be the case. So they say, no, you're good, you can do it, I have faith in you. What they're really saying is, I didn't make a mistake, I'm okay. And in a family, what we're saying is, you matter so much to me, I need you to be okay. So you're okay. I'm just telling you. Good stuff. Thank you, Shannon. Dr. G, staying, staying here and not oversimplifying, what were some of the things, some of the advice, recommendations you gave people last year when this whole pandemic blindsided us and we had to work from home and we had to homeschool and some organizations laid people off. It just was a year of uncertainty and stress and change. I'm only laughing because you're saying that like 2021 isn't a year of uncertainty and stress <laughs> and change. <laughs> and I wish that were the case, but I think, I think we're still in the thick of it. You know, the encouragement that I can give is that we have, medically speaking, we have more of this pandemic behind us than we do in front of us. But it's, it was, and it is true that this is really hard, but you're pointing out something really important. You're pointing out that 10 months ago, this was in a lot of ways harder, not more financially impactful than the now, that depends on the person, not even more health impactful than the now, that depends on everybody's individual circumstances. But there was so much more that was unknown last March and April, we didn't, I say this to my medical students all the time, we didn't even know what we didn't know. Mm. And now we at least know what we don't yet know. And we have some language and some shared experience. And that shared experience makes resilience a little easier. When I have to call my church and tell them that I'm not gonna be able to volunteer the way I said I would, right. when they don't know what I'm going through, that's harder than when everybody knows what everybody's going through. So there's some advantage to this shared experience, even while understanding that my experience is different than yours, Dr. James, and I can't assume that it's been as easy or as hard for you as it has been for me. I don't mean it in that way. Sure, I just mean sure. There's some advantage in January of 2021 to everybody knowing that everybody's kids are two feet off the screen if they're on a screen or that everybody's parents' well-being is weighing on that person that's talking to you about something entirely different. Let's, so that, that's helped, I think. 
let's let's stay with the shared experience. Uh, share your experience about getting the vaccine. What was Ooh, that like? Yeah. What did it mean? A little birdie told me that you did get the vaccine. It meant hope to me, uh, hope and opportunity. So I don't think this is going to be a spoiler alert for anybody who saw that I'm an MD. I am pro-vax. <laughs> in, in just about every case, I have given every vaccine that exists and I have treated people uh, and lost people to almost every vaccine preventable illness that exists. And let me tell you which I like better. Mm, mm, mm. So when the vaccine was coming along, I've been researching and reading and learning every step of the way because I knew I would need to answer a lot of good, hard questions from my patients and yeah. the larger community about this. So I took advantage of the opportunity of getting this on the earlier end to get online and say, ask me your questions, tell me your concerns. What's hard about this for you? Because vaccine hesitancy is totally normal for the same reason that all change is hard, which is our brains first process loss, distrust, and discomfort before we can act in a resilient way. Right. Well, what are you saying to the people who want to wait and see how it goes round one, round two, um, especially people of color? Um, there's no secret that for many people of color, there's a lack of trust in the system. And there should be. And there should be that lack of trust because that's the shared experience of people of color have been not only marginalized, but completely taken advantage of by the medical community. Yeah. So your, your encouragement is for them to lean so, into discomfort or? So the first thing is, and this is the same thing that I teach organizations when they bring about any change, you know, a new computer system or a new client or a new product or a new building or whatever it is. And that is the very first step is empathy. Because even before I ask you, why don't you want it? Because I don't want to assume, right? You might say to me, well, didn't you hear about the Tuskegee experiments? Yeah. I say, yeah, I have heard that. Okay, that's part of your why. But somebody else might say, because of how my mom was treated about this thing or this thing, you know, who knows? I, I can't assume your why. So, but even before I ask, why are you upset? The first thing I have to do is say, I hear you. There's something that my kids are saying a lot and I'm not gonna try and be cool, but they say, heard, right? <laughs> when somebody expresses something, they say, heard. And, and, and you gotta mean that. You've gotta really be able to hear, like, I am not where you are about this thing, whatever the change is. And when it's about the right. vaccine, okay. Then I would like to ask why. What loss are you considering? What, what's your brain telling you, trying to protect you from? What loss? And where's your distrust? And is your distrust in a place where information and education will help you or it won't help you? Because often we think, oh, I can empower you with education. Sometimes that's useful, but not if that's not where you are. If your discomfort is about feeling taken advantage of, or feeling marginalized then and experimented on now. And by then and now, I mean like, you know, two months ago and right now, as far as COVID goes, especially for communities of color. So then, then all the information in the world isn't gonna to touch that. Right. We have work to do. Yeah, we, we absolutely do. We're not where we were. We've moved, the ball's moving down the field. Yeah, I do, I really do believe that. 
partially because we're even having the conversation, you know, state of California, when they're trying to figure out where they're going to allot their doses, they put people on their commission to say, your job is to speak up for combating racism in this process. And so we're going to put people of color who don't hit any of the other requirements, like that's their only risk factor in ahead of the line a little bit. And then we have to find the language to say, we're doing this to try and right old wrongs, not to experiment on you. It's mm, good. Fantastic perspective. Thank you. Let's shift just a little bit because you've done something that I want to do. And I want to find out what that experience was about. Let's hang gliding? I've done hang gliding. Is that it? No. I want to talk about your TED Talk. Not oh. Rachel Ray show or not the Good Morning America. Your TED Talk as a speaker. That's something that I aspire to do and do soon. What was that experience like? And what did you speak on when you did your talk? So I actually, I'm going to share with you here some news that I have not even told my family yet. I got an email invitation today. I've been proposing my next TED Talk, and I got an email invitation today for a TED Talk. Um, so Beautiful. I can talk about it from the perspective of the one I did in 2015, and that was aimed at parents and youth development folks and high school and college students. It's called the expectation gap. And what mm. I was trying to talk about how is the wealth gap matters, the education gap matters, and I address privilege a little bit in that. But what I wanted to say is one of the places that everyone can positively impact the young people in their lives is by increasing their expectations. Instead of dropping them out of empathy for kids or wanting our kids to feel good, which I totally get. I have four kids and I like them most days, right? But <laughs> too honest? Okay. Anyway. Not but, only four kids, but four young men. You're raising four men. Yeah, 12 to 18. I can't even say kids. That 18-year-old is like full-on adult now, like not just adult-sized. Anyway, when, <laughs> but in, in my talk, what I was talking about is that we tend to lower our expectations because we have so much empathy for our kids. Um, and that if we can raise our expectations, they will rise to meet that. They will learn more resilience, problem-solving, all of that. And that problem-solving issue, I've been focusing on that for many years because the opportunity to solve problems and to handle change. That's what builds resilience. That's what I'm saying about stress. It's not that I think stress can't be damaging. It's that every change can make us stronger. And what I'm gonna talk about in my next TED Talk is that resilience isn't a character trait. It's a series of actions that anyone can choose to take at any time. But to your point, and for anybody listening who says, I have a big idea, I see something that society is getting wrong and that I wanna point out how we can do better. That is actually all you need to get a TED talk. That and perseverance. Because if you have a big idea that you are committed to, passionate about, um, you don't have to have a PhD in it, right? I don't have an MD in resilience. You have to have real lived experience that you're willing to be vulnerable or authentic and share in some way. And then, you have to figure out who in your world, a place you went to high school, the town you grew up in, a group that you're a member of is hosting a TED talk. Or you can do what one of my sons did, which was nobody, because he was only 12, fit into those categories for him. So he got a franchise, which doesn't cost anything, and created his own TEDx event. It was called TEDx Youth Blue Slide Park. And it was 
three years ago now, and he invited all kinds of speakers, but he said they had to mostly be kids. So he had middle and high school, as well as college students and a couple of grownups come and speak at this event. So TEDx is a really important platform that you get involved with at any level. And it really just depends on how much sweat equity you're willing to put in. That's a phenomenal example, your son, with one of my favorite quotes, they become who you be. So as you be, they become, and they're becoming what they see every day in their mom. Shannon, your thoughts on that and what's happening in the chat room? Chat room's blowing up. People are loving Dr. G's perspective. They appreciate her. They wanted to hear more about TED Talks. Um, we go back to people oversimplifying stress and saying, you know, sometimes your boss has so much confidence in you that they think you can do it no matter what. Um, and then folks are saying, you know, we also know that um, if we're resilient and we keep moving, you don't quit, right? So it's the best way to not be defeated. But uh, a question out there is, um, just between you and me, Dr. G, don't mind these folks. Um, <laughs> I hear you might have done a little improv in, you know, in your journey. And I want to know, or inquiring minds want to know, how has humor played a part in you managing stress and being resilient? So Shannon, you know how a lot of people have been talking about they, uh, they, they found themselves doom scrolling in the pandemic? I meme scroll. That is, so, I mean, a good belly laugh is, you guys have all, I bet you've all at some point seen a TV show about doctors. And so you've seen that moment of like the patient codes and it goes flatline on the EKG and they say clear, they put the paddles together and they do this and they say clear and they put the paddles on the person and they press a button and bam, something dramatic happens. It's called defibrillating, right? One of the best proven ways to defibrillate your stress hormones, to defibrillate your mood, get it into a totally different rhythm is laughter. I have no problem if what you're laughing at is me. And improv taught me that, that the goal is to get people thinking, to get people changing and to say yes. The opportunity in improv is to say yes. And I'm a clown too, or yes. And it's even better with Cheese whiz. When we get a chance to laugh, it changes things. And on the stage, I know that if I can get you laughing, I can get you learning. And if I can't get you laughing, probably I'm not going to be able to do my job of getting you learning either. Mm. Does that, thanks, Shannon, does that play a role? Do we see that when you're working with your patients, when you're working with your clients, when you're writing for Huffington Post, Huffington Post and Wall Street, how does that show up? How do you pivot and you do so much? How do you bring all of you or do you just bring aspects of your personality when you work in those different realms? The longer I'm a doctor, the more of myself I bring into the exam room, um, you know, the less pretension and, and belief I have about how I'm supposed to be. And the more I've realized that my patients come to me for who I am and because I do my best to listen to who they really are. So that means that, yeah, you're as likely to hear laughter coming from one of my exam rooms as anything else. And I think that that sometimes startles my staff and other patients a little bit. They're walking by and they hear those belly laughs. But I think that really how it matters is that authenticity. 
I believe, and this is different than stand-up comedy and it's different than some memes and that kind of humor, but I think that in improvisation, humor really only comes with authenticity when you're willing to be vulnerable. And I don't mean that you're always being, you're always, you can play a character, but you've got to be willing to authentically throw yourself in. You can't hold a part of yourself back trying not to look dumb or trying not to look to embarrass yourself. So when you can put all of yourself out there and say, this is it, and I get some things right, and sometimes I get stuff wrong, that offers the opportunity for trust. And that's what you're asking me about. How can we ever change anybody's mind if there's not trust as a part of it? Can you think of a time when you struggled with that? And it's one of the reasons why I did my research on authenticity. But can you think of a time when you struggled with being authentic or you struggled with, you did put yourself out there and it came back to bite you? Okay, so my particular professional journey has been really cool, but there was a real lack of supervisor evaluation in my journey. Mm -hmm. Mostly, you know, first I was in theater and in theater, you work a place for two months or four months or six months, and then you go to the next show. So there really aren't halfway through employee evaluation kind of things. Uh, you interview, and that's an evaluation of sorts, and then you just get yes or no. So, or you audition, same thing. And then I was a sign language interpreter. And in that situation, you rarely, now they're better at it, but we rarely got evaluated by our clients, by the deaf client or by the hearing client. So I wasn't getting a lot of feedback. And then I went to medical school where you get grades, but still not a lot of evaluation. So here I get a job. Um, and after about five years, our health center grows big enough that the board of directors says, hey, you should be evaluating your employees. So I go to my very first ever employee review. And by now, I guess I'm in like my mid thirties, late thirties at that time. And I sit down with my boss and First, she gives me some really good feedback about how, uh, you know, I really know my stuff medically and I take really good care of my patients and I'm warm and I'm professional and I put people at ease and I'm getting everything done and I make life easy for the other docs in practice and all that. And then she says, so the only concern I have to share with you is that the nurses who work on your team uh, and the MAs who, you know, were tasked with carrying out the things you've asked them to do, well, you're not a very good team player. Mm. And I was like, I was horrified because this is, I don't know, the mid, late 2000 aughts and being a team player at work, that's what it's about, right? That's everything I'd ever read. You're supposed to be a good team player. And then it gets worse. I go home that night and I tell my husband, I'm really upset about this. And I tell him what happened. And he says, oh, honey. And he puts his hand on my hand and he says, did she tell you about the sky being blue also? <laughs> And, and so I had to do some serious self-evaluation and then, you know, and, and my husband didn't see, and yes, he's my ex-husband now, but this wasn't why he didn't see <laughs> why that would be upsetting to me, but not because he was trying to be snarky because he said to me, you're a good team leader. Like that's what you do. So here I was thinking that those were the same thing that bringing my team leadership self of like, I got this, don't worry, patient's gonna be okay. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, that that was enough, that that was my job and that everybody would be not just respect it, but like be happy with me because I was getting the work done. And I didn't, I totally failed 
because people thought I had no empathy for them. They thought I had tons of empathy for our patients and they respected right. that, but they thought I had no empathy for them or their situation or what might be going on with them and that I didn't have any humility. And I think they were right. I, I, they were wrong. I had lots of empathy. They were right that I didn't have enough humility, not nearly. Uh, and so having to figure out how to like express my empathy and show experience, have more humility, that's been really hard for me, especially for, I'd say like the five years after that, I'm, I'm not great at it even now, but I recognize the necessity of it. And one of the things in authentically that I've learned to do is say, Hey, I'm bad at noticing nuance. If you're frustrated with something I'm doing, or I'm not giving you what you need, please tell me. And I've said that to my kids. I've said that to my partners. I've said that to my nurses. I've said that to patients. And I've said, I know that I have some blind spots and I'm asking you if you're willing to help me be better. Yeah, you, you said that to me. It's in essence, it's how we met. That is part of how we met, I guess, yeah. If you recall, I was, I was doing the, the virtual session for NSA Pittsburgh and we were talking about something and it led to a conversation about race. Mm -hmm. I said, this is how you should address it and you said, well, that might be easier for you because you fit that description. How does a white person? And I was so intrigued that we were able to have that authentic conversation in front of everyone and, and talk it through. Because in essence, you said, you know, I might need a little support or guidance in this area. Do you remember that Saturday? Great. The, the ability to say, all right, I, I've learned to recognize that I have privilege. I've learned to recognize that I have implicit biases. I know that I want to be not racist and anti-racist, but that probably I am racist in some ways. And I, I've, I've investigated it. So whatever's left is stuff I don't even see. Can you help me see it? And can you help me introduce this conversation to people with humility, right? I was asking you to help me to show the humility that I feel, but I don't show very well. Right. Well, after that little dialogue, I said, I need to get to know her better. And as a result, we formed a pretty cool friendship. So thank you for that. I want to pull over, pull the car over for a second, since we're talking about empathy and change and race and problem solving. Something tells me you know about what happened last Wednesday. <laughs> I, just I just have a feeling that you know just a little bit about what happened last week? Uh, your reactions and how do we, how do we bring in resilience and handle that change and the problem? Just your overall thoughts and where we can go from here. So one of the things that I think is really true, and I learned this actually in my residency from a, um, an oncologic surgeon. That's somebody who removes cancer. And he said, you know, when people get cancer in their lives, it doesn't just mean how am I going to fight this? There's a question before that. And you know what? It goes back to the same vaccine conversation, Dr. James, but everybody has their own reason. And it was one of the places that I started to learn this process of if somebody is resistant to doing something that you really believe will save their life. The first thing they need is empathy. And the second thing is to ask them some good questions and listen to the answers. And because we would have people with, you know, a totally operable tumor, meaning we could remove it and they would live longer. And they were like, nope, if this is how I'm gonna go, this is how I'm gonna go. 
So he wasn't willing to give up there and just say, okay, go back to your regular doctor. You don't need me. He said, can you tell me? And he said, part of my gift and responsibility is to figure out who needs a handhold, who needs some more time to process, and who needs to just see the tumor. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, some people, I take them into the reading room. This is before computers were like they are now. And I put it up on the whiteboard and I use a marker and I outline the tumor. And I say, this is what I can get rid of. This thing that's living in you, I can take most of it or I can take all of it. And I think that last Wednesday helped some folks see the tumor. And I hope that for the people for whom that is helpful, it'll make a real impact. And I hope that some of those people are lawmakers. I really do. Because whatever you believe or whatever your experience is of the events that led to last Wednesday, I hope that nobody is okay with insurrection. I hope that nobody is okay with um, a kangaroo court bringing in ropes to hang people. It is wrong when people are lynched. And communities of color have been screaming that for 400 years in this country alone, you know, on our soil alone. Uh, and, and it's still true. And there were people there who were happy to post on social media that they were there hoping to lynch people and you know, to hang them for their beliefs and for their actions. And that's a tumor. So I really hope that people will be able to see the tumor. I think that for all of us, this was a change. And like I said, the first three things that happen are loss. Our brains think about like, what am I gonna lose? And distrust, is it really as bad as they said? Did it really happen? Can anything be done? And discomfort comes after distrust. Even after you start to believe this really happened and maybe something can be done, that even in the solutions, there's real discomfort. But as soon as you remember, I said that those three things came before you could act resiliently. As soon as you remember that you still have choices in who you vote for and what you speak about in what messages you amplify in how you talk to your kids in how you talk to your business teams about the stress that that created. Even if we don't talk politics at work, you have to have empathy at work for people's real experiences. Then when you remember you have choices, you're engaging and you're able to act in a resilient way and come out of this horrible thing more of the kind of person you wanna be. I know that you, Dr. James, you went through the tragedy of George Floyd's death and you came out of that change more the kind of person you wanna be. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I love your phrase or your word. Uh, we call it a phrase that pays, but when you said we have to see the tumor, huge, huge. And sometimes many of us ignore the tumor where we have learned to live in pain and become okay with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a patient who came to see me with like an orange growing out of her neck. Like you would stare at this on a bus if you didn't know this woman, right? And, uh, and, and she wasn't there about that. She was there about like some wrist pain. And I said, hey, what's going on here? And she's like, what? Oh. Oh yeah, I guess that's been getting bigger for a while. I don't know. I was just gonna see what happened. Mm. I, I I fall into that category too. Last Thursday, I had eye surgery. I had a cataract removed, and the next day, and since then, the world appears. I was gonna say, how do we look now? High <laughs> definition. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can see. <laughs> but for the period of time when I was battling that change my prescription, get another pair of glasses, 
not drive at night, do everything to go along to get along. And finally, I had the surgery and wow. That's all I can say is wow. So I, I've, I've been guilty of that as well. I wanna move into another segment of the show. It's, it's one we do all the time. It's called the hot seat. The hot seat, Dr. G, you are now- My seat? <laughs> the hot seat. Nice. A seat, you are now in the hot seat. What happens is, I'm gonna ask you, I'm not gonna ask you, I'm gonna give you a word. And I want your knee jerk, non-edited reaction. What word comes to mind when you hear that word? And we're gonna go through a series of them and don't go into editing and thinking long and wanting to get it right, just get it. Okay, it's like a Rorschach test, I'm in. Here, here we go, are you ready? Here we go, tumor. Cancer. Education. Necessary. Resilience. Strength. Power. Wow, power. Kings and queens. <laughs> <laughs> Humor. Necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. G. Working. Pandemic. Almost over. <laughs> Children. Resilient. Race. Painful. Change. Necessary. <laughs> Dr. G, you are off the hot seat. <laughs> hey, Shannon. Shannon, Dr. G's off the hot seat. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of one words for myself. And I'm, I'm thinking of G and Dr. G and, you know, and to me, I kept thinking of these one words too, Dr. James. I was thinking genuine, graceful, gifted, gracious, <laughs> and just downright great is what I'm trying to say here. And Dr. G, you know, when you get out your little prescription pad and you're writing scripts, let me ask you this. What's the script you write yourself? What's your Dr. G, you are back on the hot seat. <laughs> no, I'll take it. Um, intention. Right, so I, look, I did that thing, right? I just gave you one word. So for me, whatever I'm doing, if I'm doing it kind of fog, like eating, if I'm fog eating and I'm not really enjoying it, then what was the point? Like, yeah, it's necessary, you gotta fuel up. But if I can do it with intention, then I can fuel up and enjoy it. Spending time with my kids. If they're just there and I'm just there, that's valuable. That's definitely better than never being there. But if I can take two minutes and like, you know, wrestle with my little one or ask a good question of my 16 year old and really listen to the answer or hear a story from my 14 year old and just be intentional, then that feels like I can spend shorter on anything, whether it's exercise or connecting with a friend or eating or whatever it is, shorter amount of time and feel more filled up and get more out of it. So it's reminding myself to try and be intentional about what I'm doing. I love it. I love it. Can you imagine Dr. James? And we did want to, uh, Shelby and, and all of us wanted to give your son a shout out and saying, apples don't fall far from trees. So we did put your son's um, FedEx in there. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Shannon. Dr. G, if people want to find out or learn more about you, your book, videos, your appearance on Martha, I mean, Rachel Ray, where can they go? Um, the easiest place is my website, which is askdrg.com. 
but if you're interested in the chat or in the notes afterwards, I'm happy to give everybody a link to a free video that I have that is, and most of my stuff is free, but mm -hmm. a video that I have specifically about that resilience cycle, thinking about every time you have a change, what happens in your brain and how can you act resiliently that you can share. Um, it's the download of the cycle itself and also a two minute video that explains. And then there's more information about how to use it at work or on yourself or in the kids in your life. Can you tell us about the, the series that you've been working on of late? Um, I caught a glimpse of it. You have a couple other people there. And yeah. Yeah. I got really nervous, uh, really worried last August, September, thinking about the upcoming election season and holiday season and days getting shorter and virus getting worse and up here in the north weather getting colder. And I started to really consider, oh, and informed by the study that came out in August where they asked folks, adults in the US and in the UK about their symptoms of their mental health. So mental illness has some very strict definitions. And 18% of adults about have a chronic mental illness condition. But here's the thing, we asked adults about anxiety, sadness, worry, overwhelm, guilt, lack of, of enjoyment in what they usually had. And more than 90% of the adults who responded said they'd had one of these symptoms. So that's not just the 18% of people who are already handling their mental illness. That was more than 90% of adults were, were suffering from what I call mental distress because it's not mental illness because that implies this chronic thing that you always have flares of, but yeah. is real mental distress. So I was lucky enough to create a limited series YouTube show with two very smart people, a man named Brian Copeland and a woman named Jeanette Capoon. And the three of us were able to interview some folks and we did a half an hour talk show style show for four episodes called, We Got You. Uh, and one episode is on isolation and one is about fear and one is about feeling overwhelmed and one is about failure because we wanted to know what is the science show and what are some strategies and who are some people that could really inspire us as we all try and handle those feelings? Wow, it's amazing, amazing. Just borrowing from what you just said to inspire us. I know you've been working with children a lot. And I'm gonna show a, a brief clip. And then we talked about it a little bit earlier, expectation. Just wanted you to add more to your, your story or, or your approach to elevating the child's self-esteem, getting them to step up and to expect more. So let's show this clip first and then you can speak to what's next. Awesome. You matter. All of the research is clear. Kids need their parents whether they realize it or not. In times of struggle, it's common for adults to feel like we're failing our kids, that we don't have all the answers. So it's important to know that research also shows answers are not what our kids need from us. What do they need? Four things. First and foremost, empathy. Study after study of children and teens show that they most need care and understanding. There are no rules about feelings and kids need adults who will not tell them how they should or should not feel, but rather adults who can listen to how our kids do feel and show them we care. So you gave us one, we've been talking empathy. You mentioned the others 
in a conversation, but can you capture them again so that we can write them down and take them and use them? So, absolutely. So empathy is really important. And the reason I mentioned it first is because just like uh, was asking about earlier from someone in the chat, empathy is often hardest to give to the people in our family because we'd rather tell them how we want them to feel than be able to accept how they are feeling. But it does kids more good when we can just hear how they actually feel. The next thing that really, really helps kids is the opportunity to tell their story, not just express or say like, I yeah. see that you're sad or I hear that you're frustrated, but tell me about it from your point of view. Because Dr. James, when we worry about stress, when we say, oh, we gotta be careful about stress, we don't wanna stress people out, it's because we wanna protect mental health. And that's really smart. We should be worried about the mental health of our colleagues, of our family members, of our children, because we've seen that we haven't given enough attention to mental health as a society or as individual communities or businesses, and it's taking a real toll. But there are three skills that when people have them, they can protect their own mental health better. Doesn't mean that they can protect themselves from developing mental illness. That's not what I mean. Yeah, I mean so that when they suffer from the symptoms of mental illness or mental distress, they're less likely to harm themselves or engage in risky behaviors. Three skills. And we can teach them to kids and we can drop them out in other adults. But those three skills are the ability to tell their own story, to self-advocacy. Mm. You talk a lot about teaching people to be advocates for others, but you know, they, nobody can be an advocate for someone else until they know how to be an advocate for themselves. They have to be able to speak truth. And so letting kids tell their story, even though sometimes if you have chatterboxes like I do, it can feel like <laughs> you've entirely lost the plot and they've just been talking and talking and talking and talking. That exercise for them of talking and having somebody who is at least partially listening, that's valuable. And then the second skill that they need, so the third thing we can do is to help kids be good problem solvers. Mm. I bet that most people who are listening today are excellent problem solvers. And when someone brings you the prob a problem, the easiest, most fun, best thing to do is just fix it yourself. You yep. can even, yep. you know, you have sons, you know, you can even see problems coming down the road and you just reach out and fix them before they even happen. Your kid doesn't even notice that that was going to be a thing because you fixed it. The problem is our job isn't if we want to help people protect their own mental health. It's not to fix their problems for them. It's to give them the skills they need to learn how to solve their own problems. And the easiest way to do that with kids is to look at the situation, make sure nobody's life is in danger. And if nobody's life is in danger, you do this one really hard, but very simple thing, which is say, oh, that seems hard. What do you think you should do? Mm. And then wait, sit on your hands, bite your tongue. Don't <laughs> tell them, don't answer for them let them try to solve their own problem. And you can do this in a leadership role too, at work. When someone brings you a problem, the easiest thing for them would be if you just fixed it, but then you're gonna be fixing everybody's problems always, and they're not gonna get more resilient as employees. And you're not gonna help them learn to protect their own productivity and mental health. So if you can say, okay, what have you tried so far that hasn't worked? What else are you thinking about trying? In that way, we're teaching problem solving. And those same phrases work really well with kids. And then the last thing that people have to know how to do to protect their own mental health is to know how and when to ask for help. It's really confusing to people when I say, don't solve it for them, get them to ask for help, right? How That seems like it's in conflict, but here's the thing. You ask the, the child or as a supervisor, you look at that person who works with you on your team, and if they're not in danger, 
remembering, and this is really important, that uncomfortable is awful, but it's not unsafe. Danger is when something is unsafe and trying to separate that out and figure out what's uncomfortable and what's actually unsafe. But if nothing is unsafe about this situation, then they should try to solve a problem twice before they ask for help. Kids, kids or coworkers, right? With empathy, with support, not with like, well, what have you done about it? Why are you bringing it to me? But actually like, okay, what didn't work? What else are you thinking about trying? Because if they know that once they've tried twice, it'd be totally reasonable to ask for help. And then knowing how to ask for help is about asking in a way that generates empathy and support, not frustration. That's good. That's good. You made me think about sometimes when I'm doing workshops and someone asks a question, I have a rule that's called three before me. Three people nice. will answer the question before I do. That way I can get a pulse for the room. Speaking of pulse, time is getting away. Gosh, it's flying by. Wow, it is. One more segment before we land the plane. And you should crush this segment because like me, you are a speaker. You're a TED Talk speaker. You speak for a living. You are now going to give us your 30-second keynote. You're going to look into that camera. You're going to move toward the mic. And you're going to give us 30 seconds on resiliency, 30 seconds on change, 30 seconds on how we can make 2021 a spectacular year. But 30 seconds, Dr. G, keynote, your 30 seconds starts now. Resilience isn't a character trait. You're not in trouble if you don't have it. It's a set of skills and you can build any of those skills at any time by trying to figure out what choices you have no matter what change you've been going through. My mom of blessed memory used to say, if you're still breathing, you've got options. You may not like them, but you've got them. So pick something and try it. It's okay to be wrong, but try something that will build your resilience and might fix the problem in front of you. Shannon, mic drop, bam, bam, bam. Dr. G, yeah. how'd I do? All right. It's, it's not even an A plus, it's a G plus. Do you know what I'm saying? Nice. Rating system. And, and, and Dr. James, it just brings me to, to the point for our viewers because today sitting back and, and enjoying both you and Dr. G present, um, for our viewers, is there something that you could offer Dr. James or something you can remind us of that you might have upcoming that can make us better presenters in the world and in this virtual world we're living in right that now? That was so smooth, Shannon. The boot camp, February 23rd through 25th, our virtual boot camp. Please go to the website and find out more information and keep your ears and eyes open. We'll be sending out more information, our boot camp. And I also saw in the chat room that one of our guests today, one of our viewers, was chiming in, calling in all the way from Sweden, Anders Kinding from Sweden. So Dr. G, you bring them out from all over the world. Nice. We, we so thank you for the time you've given us today. You've given us your wisdom, your heart, your authenticity, your humor. You've given us an awful lot to consider. And listen, watch the recording. This is some good stuff today and apply it. Ask yourself how you're going to adapt, adopt, and apply the information that Dr. G provided today. And you know how I close. Get ready. You were just jump-packed. Take care.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.